Okay, this is Iron Sports. We're talking to Todd Zalecki. Um, he just wrote out, the book is out now, called Doc Holiday, uh, The Life of Roy Halliday. Uh, it was in bookstores today, and you can uh, order it online. Uh, thanks a lot, Todd, for coming on Iron Sports. I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. So, I mean, Doc Holiday is interesting. For a decade, he's the best pitcher in baseball. First ballot Hall of Famer, 203 wins, two Cy Youngs. But it's like how his career went. It just it ended so quickly, and then of course, unfortunately, he passed away. It was it was you know you chose to, to focus on him because it really you know there's no other books about uh, about Doc Holliday, even though he was the pitcher of the 2000s. Yeah, he really was, and there was a lot of different reasons I wanted to kind of write write the book. And uh, you know, certainly from a baseball perspective, he has such a unique story. Um, you know, former first round draft pick, almost throws a no hitter in his second big league start. But then in the 2000 season, a couple years into the big leagues, he posts a 10.64 ERA. You know, to this day, it's still the single season highest ERA of in, in baseball history of any pitcher that's ever thrown 50 or more innings in a season. And you know, as I researched the book, I, I came to realize that not no other Hall of Famer even remotely came close to having a season that terrible. So I kind of wanted to figure out, you know, how did this guy go from being almost a first round bust? to, like you said, being a first ballot Hall of Famer. And so I, I started to dig into that. Um, and, you know, I found so many different things that I just, that gave me, you know, a passion for kind of telling his story. Uh, and, and, and one of them is, you know, his devotion to sports psychology. You know, the mental side of the game was critical for Roy to be successful uh, as a baseball player. And that kind of became his what he wanted to become his second career. You know, he had, he had taken a, a job with the Phillies as a mental skills coach before he died. I mean, you're right. As you said, he was the best pitcher in the history of Colorado in high school. Um, we had just Keith Law on our show, and he talked about how the risk is always drafting uh, first-round uh, uh, high school pitchers, and, the, and, they're, and they're usually all busts. But and you said and his war wins against average was 64, and the next 13 after him was .3. So it shows that. And, you, and I'm a Pirate fan, so the Pirates passed on him, of course. But it's that it's that the fact that he came in with high expectations to the Blue Jays and then just was horrendous, not just bad or average, but just like the worst ever. And they sent him down to single A and said, you're just going to rebuild everything that you know about it. And they had uh, Mel Queen work with him. But talk about besides the mental, even if they changed his arm angles and everything just to get him to go from being like he couldn't even throw the ball into one of the most dominant pitchers of all time. Yeah, he was he was very very hittable early on. He, they called him Iron Mike because his <laughs> his his delivery was very over the top, kind of like the old pitching machine, uh, batting practice machine. And so Mel Queen, who's kind of like the the fixer for the Blue Jays, you know, he he could solve any problem. Former pitching coach, um, you know, Roy went down to A ball, like you said. He actually wasn't pitching that good in A-ball. I mean, he was he was in his early 20s. He should have been dominating these guys. He had been in the big leagues for a few years. He was just doing eh, okay, you know. Uh, so they, they promoted him to double-A. He thought it was a promotion, but really what it, what it was is they put him on the phantom injured list, and he worked with Mel Queen. Mel basically tore him down completely, mentally and physically. And he said, listen, if you don't do everything I tell you, you're going to be out of the big leagues by the end of the year. And he basically, I don't want to say scared him, but he, he, you know, he, he made his point very, very clear to Roy. And Roy was embarrassed and humiliated with how he had been pitching. You know, he had been touted as the next Roger Clemens, as the next Pat Henkin for years. He was going to be the savior to the Blue Jays franchise. And now he was like, 
just what he thought was a miserable failure. And so he said, all right, Mel. And he took the abuse, and uh, he changed his arm angle. The ball started to move. And in talking to a lot of people about that chapter in Roy's life, it was almost instantaneous how quickly he took to it. They said, boy, he was only gone for a few months. He came back, and he was a completely different pitcher with a completely different outlook. We look at pitchers today, and people go back in time, and they look, well, like we just had John Shea did Willie Mays, and he was talking about how his stats, people didn't really interpret his stats the right way. He came, like if Willie Mays was today, he'd be like Mike Trout winning MVPs every year. And you went through that run of 2002 to 2000, I mean, in, when he was with the Blue Jays. You know, he was only won what, that one Cy Young, but he could have won in 2002. He was 12-3 and three one year, then 16-5, 16-7, 20-11. And, and you're like, you know, looking back with the wins against Av- uh, replacement players, he could have won like two or three more Cy Youngs during that dominant period, but he also he was never made the postseason, so we didn't see him in the big postseason games during that time. Yeah, it, it, so in a weird way, he was kind of an underrated, underappreciated pitcher, even though everybody regarded him. Every, either, even though everybody had faced him, feared him, and just idolized him, you know, in terms of uh, you know the best pitchers in baseball, he was, he kind of flew under the radar. I mean, he was pitching in Toronto, so they don't get as much attention as some of the U.S. as some of the U.S. teams. Uh, you know, he, you know, he he, did, he wasn't in the postseason with the Blue Jays, like you mentioned, so nobody really got to see him on that type of stage. And you're right, you know. Back then, the BBWA voters that vote for Cy Young, they kind of just looked at wins, ERA, and saves. You know, so like a guy that won 23 games was going to win the Cy Young over a guy that won 20, even though the guy that won 23 games might have benefited from a better offense and a weaker division. And yeah, you know, if you look at the numbers, Roy should have probably won at least a couple more Cy Young awards with the Blue Jays. And if you look at his 2011 season with the Phillies, uh, he won 19 games that year. Clayton Kershaw won 22. But if you look at wins above replacement just as a measuring stick, he was way better than Clayton Kershaw that year. And then the one thing for your book that came out is just his his obsession, his workout routine would be running. I mean, I know people do stuff on their off days, but here's someone who was just, I mean, this was just the, it was crazy in terms of how he pushed himself. He was there at five 30 every morning, his dedication. And then you talked about how his knowledge and his studying. I mean, he was 24 seven, 365 or whatever during the season was focused on being the best baseball pitcher. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fear of failure from those early years in his career kind of was a nonstop motivator for him. And when he discovered Harvey Dorfman, the, the late great sports psychologist, Harvey kind of gave him a path to greatness. He, he taught him about the importance of preparation. He taught him the, uh, the skill set, I guess, on the mound, kind of how to focus, stay focused, you know, not lose your edge. And, you know, he, he realized that for him to feel confident on the mound, as good as he was, even if, even if, say, that night he was going to face the worst team in Major League Baseball, uh, if he did not prepare how he thought he needed to prepare, he wouldn't feel confident. So he did all of that stuff. I mean, certainly for a physical advantage as well. You know, you run to build your endurance. You lift weights to build your strength, maintain your strength. But it was also a box that he just had to check. So, you know, I'm sure there were many days when he did not feel good, but he ran anyway. He, you know, there's many days he felt good, but he, but he lifted weights anyway, because if he didn't, then that fifth day when he had to pitch, he would go, 
Oh man, I kind of dogged it this week. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to feel good on the mound tonight. And and he would not allow himself to feel that way. So he never, he never, you know, he never skipped on his work. And then when we, where people in the, you know, people find out about Roy Holiday is when he was traded to the Phillies. And it was one of those trades where he wasn't demanding a trade. He just, I mean, they were, the Blue Jays were dismantling the entire team. They were going to feel like, you know, as we see now in baseball, almost like a virtually a minor league team. And they worked with him in the trade. And just, it was hard. I mean, it was hard to make that trade with the Phillies. And it was actually going to go down in 2009, but they got Cliff Lee instead. And then in 2010, you talked about, it was really neat how you talked about how they had to work the extension. They had to trade Cliff Lee out of Philadelphia. And, uh, and then he comes to Philadelphia in 2010. But really with not hard feelings at all to Toronto wasn't you know the fans still loved him wasn't like he was making demands he was helping the team out and being traded yeah you know he kind of knew that you know he was getting up there in age uh, he had a lot of miles on the arm he knew he had only so many more opportunities and so you know he, you know he didn't say you've absolutely got to trade me or I'm going to sit out or anything like that but he did say Listen, I'm a free agent after the 2010 season. I, you know, I'm not going to resign with with the Blue Jays. You know, I, I have to go to a team that's that has a legitimate chance to win the World Series. He knew he knew it was not going to happen in Toronto, uh, so he said, "Listen, you can keep me. I'll pitch in 2010 in Toronto. I love it here. You know, I want to win here, but uh, after the season, I'm going to leave." So, you know, that the Blue Jays saw the writing on the wall. And they decided to, you know, we got to we got to get something for this guy. We can't just lose him and maybe get a draft pick as compensation. So um, Roy said, "Hey, I want him. If you're going to trade me, Blue uh, Phillies or the Yankees would be my two choices." And uh, the Phillies ended up being really aggressive and then ultimately getting him in, in December of 2009. I mean, people forget the Phillies, they had won it in 2008. Um, 2009, they they lost to the Yankees. So he was in terms of being in the midst of everything. I mean, the Phillies bring him in and then Trey Lee. It's all this commotion. I mean, they were really creating this powerhouse team. So he comes in 2010 and he has a great year, wins the Cy Young. But you mentioned now we're down here in South Florida and West Palm Beach and the game against the Marlins where uh, he didn't even have his family come over when they're over on the, on the west side of the state. And he pitched that perfect game against the Marlins in the old uh, Joe Robbie Stadium, not in the New Marlins Park, but but a perfect game. There's only been 20 pitchers to pitch a game like that, and just an amazing, you know, just it was it, the way you describe it. It was like a perfectly easy game for him. Yeah, it it, it really was. You know, he had he had struggled um, the start before at home against the Red Sox. So it was his first really poor start. Um, for the Phillies, and a lot of fans were kind of getting on him about, which is crazy, but not always they getting on him, but they were like, oh boy, are they, are they pitching him too much? Is he throwing too many pitches? And he came into that start super motivated. He, he wasn't super sharp the first two innings, but because Roy had fo- honed his focus uh, through Harvey Dorfman, he, you know, his mantra was one pitch at a time, one pitch at a time. In other words, he yanks a cutter out of the strike zone. He's not going to sit there and go, oh, I can't believe I, I yanked that cutter. I can't believe I yanked it. What, what am I doing out here? He would forget about that pitch, and he would throw the next one. If he got a bad call on a pitch, a pitch he thought should have been a strike, he didn't sit there and focus on it and stare at the umpire, and that allowed him to kind of stay in his, stay in his game, and then, boom, he, start, he started to find his groove in the third inning there and then just absolutely dominated, dominated the Marlins the rest of the way. 
and then he makes the playoffs and again, the first game against the Reds. And I remember it was an afternoon game. I was at a function I had to go to for work and I saw how the game was progressing. And then by the sixth inning, I'm like, I got to go find and watch this. And I remember running yeah. these bars in New York and like turn this baseball game on and they go, we don't have TBS. And they're, you know, it's hard. It's hard to win. And this game's like on. It was like, whatever. I couldn't get the channel. It was insane. And I was like yelling at bartenders, but to pitch, <laughs> you know, be, have only, there's been only been two no hitters in the history of baseball in the postseason, Don Larson and Roy Holiday. So that was just, you know, another, you know, to, and pitch two, a perfect two no hitters in the same year is just crazy. It, it, it was, uh, you know, that was probably the most fun game um, I've ever covered in my, my career. I've been covering baseball since 2003, and that was by far the most fun I've had, the most, the most memorable game I've had, just because, again, like you said, only two postseason no hitters in baseball history. And I got to be there for it. And he was way better than he was that night against the Marlins. You know, I mentioned against the Marlins in that perfect game, he was kind of struggling the first two innings to find, to, for, with his command and control. That, that postseason game against the Reds, he was on it from the very first pitch. And, you know, I write about this in the book. Roy had nine days to prepare from his last start of the regular season uh, to the start against the Reds. And in his mind, he was like, the Reds have no chance. Because <laughs> I, I'm going to out-prepare them. There is, not a, there is no chance that the Reds are going to out-prepare me for this game. I'm going to study every hitter. And not only did he study every hitter, he studied every pitcher that he thought might hit in the game. So he, he, he studied Travis Wood, who he thought might come into the game as a long reliever. And guess what? Travis Wood came into the game as a long reliever, uh, as a long reliever, and, and pinch hit for Edison Volquez. So, like, it, he net, he was always full tilt in preparation. He said he was never more confident in his entire life going into a game. Uh, it meant a lot to him because he always wondered how he would fare in a, in an environment like that. And certainly, he proved that not only could he pitch in the postseason, but he could pitch like one of the best ever in the postseason. But unfortunately, we never saw in the World Series because then the next series against San Francisco, against a massive pitching pitching duel in the first game against Lincecum, when Tim Lincecum was you know the freak and the great and everything like that, and he lost a classic game against him, and they end up losing that the whole series against San Francisco with San Francisco going to the to the World Series. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it was unfortunate that he never got to the World Series. Um, you know, and in talking to, to players, his teammates, they just so badly wanted him to get there um, just because they saw how hard he worked. And, that, you know, going, going back to even before the postseason when they clinched in the National League East that year, he was on the field, he threw a complete game, he was on the field, he was doing a post-game interview, everybody's inside. Roy's walking in going, oh, man, there's going to be champagne bottles, there's going to be champagne dripping up from the ceiling, everybody's going to be celebrating. Everybody's waiting for him to get into that clubhouse because they wanted him to be one of the first guys to pop the first bottle of champagne just because they knew that how, how badly he wanted to get there and he had never gotten there before. We're talking to Todd Zalicki, author of Doc, The Life of Roy Holiday on Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9. And then I, I remember the 2000, now we know about dream teams down here in uh, Miami with LeBron and Wade and Bosch, but they put together Cliff Lee, Roy Holiday, Roy Oswald, Cole Hamels, the greatest pitching rotation in 2011. Uh, they were better than advertised because they ended up having the best record in baseball, winning all the games, and, and they had the highest warrior. The stats were through the roof. 
and they make it to the just the divisional series, so the first five round series. And you talk about in the book about how he went against Chris Carpenter, who he came through with the Blue Jay system, and one of his friends who he he hunts with. And it was just such a terrible ending to to this tremendous year with so much expectations. It was, you know, he loses one nothing. He gives up a run in the first inning. Uh, to the Cardinals, and then he pitches seven scoreless. You know uh, the you know final final uh, the next seven innings, and that was also probably one of the more memorable games I've ever covered. Just because those two were best friends, they were two Cy Young Award winners, uh, two pitchers at their peak, and uh, you know to lose one nothing in a game five like that uh, under all those circumstances, you know going into the clubhouse after the game. You know, Roy was at his locker in full uniform about 30, 30 40 minutes after the final out. I mean, he could not bear to take off his uniform. Uh, that, that image of him just in disbelief that, that he had lost, and he had lost like that. You know, you give up one run in eight innings, and you lose one nothing, and now this magical season is over. I mean, they really, you know, you talk about, you know, you mentioned best rotations ever. They really are up there, and if you go by war, uh, the Phillies rotation is that 2011 rotation had the highest war of any rotation in baseball history. They were that good, but because they don't, didn't win at all, they're kind of uh, they're going to kind of kind of be forgotten. Yeah, yeah, three of the starters were in the top five for Cy Young, which I don't think has ever happened before. You know, before or again from that. But you know, it's like I felt like when they lost, like I I knew what the result was. I'm like, oh, win that game, win that game, and he didn't. He wasn't able. Yeah. And then. And then you were hoping that after 2011, like you thought you were going to steal the Phillies. You know, they still had a core to have a good run. I mean, when you look at the Phillies now, it's a disaster. But they, uh, they, you know, they went through that that trough of that low period. Now with Bryce Harper back, they have expectations. But the point is, but 2012 was a disaster, and 2013 got worse, and, and he didn't pitch well those two years. Yeah. So in, in that game five against the Cardinals, um, he felt a pop in his back in the second inning, and 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 basically that began the the end of his career. And a lot of the back pain that caused a lot of his his issues uh, after his career, um, you know, he had been working out so hard over the years, really since you know he was 13 years old. He never took a break. That he had done some damage to his back. Finally, the the vertebrae broke. Um, he suffered fra- he had fractures in his back. The the discs in his back had eroded, and he just found it too painful to pitch. And, you know, he wanted to make people happy. He felt pressure uh, to make people happy and, and to live up to his contract. And so he started taking pain medication um, to, try to, to try to salvage what he could, and, and, and he just could not do it. And then it was real sad. I mean, he was definitely, you know, we hear about these athletes that are so high and then they just, when they, the game's gone, there's just that, that void. And he had really, you know, had trouble those last, you know, the next couple of years. And as you said, you know, he just was just struggling. He was trying to deal with his pain, uh, dealing with not pitching, not dealing with everything. And it was, it was very difficult. It, it, it really was. He battled depression. He had, he had anxiety issues. And then, the, you know, I mentioned the back pain. You know, he couldn't even, he, he was, he, he couldn't get into, into a car for more than a half an hour without being in pain. You know, it was, it was tough for him to travel. You think about, you know, you pitch for 16 years in the big leagues and you have all this money and boy, you're going to be traveling the world. And it was diff, it was difficult for him to do that. You know, it was difficult for him to do that. You know, he he was, discouraged, disappointed with how he finished his career because he didn't really get to finish the way he wanted to finish it. Um, and, and so he was, he was lost early on. You know, ultimately, he ended up 
taking this mental skills coaching job with the Phillies, which kind of gave him a second purpose. And then the second pur- and he had another second purpose, which was uh, coaching his sons in baseball. And that was another kind of a second calling for him. So, you know, it's unfortunate certainly that, that he didn't um, get to see those things through, but he, I think he had started to, you know, maybe see the light at the end of the tunnel before, before he died in the plane crash. Right. And the plane crash, I mean, it's just, it's so tragic. I mean, we think about the, the players that have died and then the, and when Kobe passed away in the helicopter crash, I mean, just brought back to Roy Holiday. And I, I grew up when I was little, I remember Thurman Munson and I remember I was in, I don't know what grade I was in elementary, not, probably junior high school. And I remember my friend who was a big Yankee fan was just like, you know, couldn't believe that Thurman Munson died. No, he was actually during his career when he had the accident, but you really, you know, you spelled out about the accident and what happened in terms of the crash. But, you know, again, there has been never, you know, no one's really figured out what happened, like why you know, he was an expert pilot and, and why he crashed that day. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, everybody kind of has their theories. And, um, you know, I, I talked with Roy's dad, who's a, a corporate pilot, and that's how Roy got his love of flying from his father. And so, you know, Roy, Roy's dad did his own investigative work and talked to a bunch of experts on, on what possibly could have happened. And I thought Roy's dad said it best. He's like, listen, the only person that can tell me what happened is Roy, and Roy's not here anymore. Um, you know, Brandy, Brandy, I talked with Brandy extensively for the book, his wife, and, you know, she knows how it looks, the NTSC report, and there's video of him flying erratically, and, and you know, there were drugs in his system, you know, the, from the coroner's report, and so, you know, she knows how, how it looks. Um, she, you know, she made it clear to me, and I, I put this in the book, that she didn't think it was suicide. Uh, I, I, I also believe that it wasn't. I, I just think it was a combination of he was being too aggressive flying, and he probably, you know, should not have been in the airplane. He was still under, you know, still medicating himself um, for depression and, and the back pain. And, you know, you mix all those things together with being aggressive with your flying, overly aggressive with your flying, erratic, however you want to call it, reckless. Um, and it was just a bad combination. So I think there was maybe just some sort of mistake was made. We've been talking to Todd Zalicki, author of Doc, The Life of Roy Holiday. Um, one last question is, what, what kind of a response has this book got? I mean, from, I mean, you mentioned you've interviewed so many of his people he played with and, and everyone you talk to. I mean, you have some players like, you know, it's not just that they like him, they revere him. I mean, and I, and, and I just, it comes out now from this, uh, you know, all the catchers you've interviewed, everyone who actually caught him in a game and almost all, you know, all these other players that played with him. And uh, it was just, so what kind of response have you got? Have people got to read this book and, and what, what, what are they saying to you? Yeah, you know, the response has been uh, really been really been nice so far. I mean, certainly, I, I, you know, Phillies fans and Blue Jays fans have, have read it and they said, oh, I, I love the book because I was a big Roy Halladay fan. But the two things that I was kind of wondering about, and I've been pleased, I guess, that, it, that, that it's resonated with some people this way, is number one, I've heard from current and former college and professional pitchers saying that this book – could could really help them uh, in the future. Uh, maybe, you know, just being able to peek inside Roy Halladay's mind. You know, I, I, I combed any interview I could where he talked about his mental approach to the game and his his philosophies on preparation, etc. And they've said, boy, I, I read this book and it, it's given me some ideas. It's got me excited about going back to work again and, and pitching again. And so that's been great. And also from a mental health point of view, um, I've heard from people saying, hey, you know, I've, I've battled – um, mental health issues throughout my life, and uh, you know, it, it's in a, in a way, it's it's been comforting to to know that you know I'm not alone out there. And and, and like Brandy said in the book, 
you know, maybe this can inspire some people to seek help if they're struggling. Because, hey, if the, you know, as she put, said, you know, if the mighty Roy Halliday um, can struggle when, when it appears he has everything, you know, going for him, then, you know, then other people shouldn't feel like, you know, embarrassed or discouraged or ashamed or, or anything like that to maybe get some help on their own. We've been talking to Todd Zalecki, author of Doc, The Life of Roy Holiday. Todd, thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, best of luck in the book. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.